This is a message from Dr. Michael Youssef, Bible teacher on Leading the Way. Our prayer is that it will encourage you in your walk of faith. And if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Youssef and the ministry of Leading the Way, the place to start is ltw.org. I want you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul was absolutely thrilled at the spiritual and biblical progress of a group of believers in Thessalonica. He was delighted of their understanding of faith, not like our false understanding of faith among so many in the church, of get all you can, can all you get, and sit on the lid. He was elated that their faith is not like many in our day, where they make it to be like a big ATM machine in the sky. When you insert your faith, push their prayer, withdraw whatever they want. These are the false teaching going around about faith. No, no, no. You have to understand, to the Thessalonians believers, persecution is not something that is happening to some people out there in a foreign land, in faraway land, some people who have been persecuted for their faith. Persecution was their daily reality. Persecution was their daily experience. Persecution was more than just verbal attack or being canceled by the woke mob, or just uh, calling us names, or just falsely accuse us of being unloving when they know jolly well that they are the most unloving people. No, no. Their faith was so real that they endured physical attack in losing of their jobs in destruction of their properties, in experiencing imprisonment, and even worse. And that is why, after the familiar introduction of all his letters, the Apostle Paul immediately goes on to say, we ought to thank God for you. Why? Verse 4, because of your perseverance and faith in the middle of your trial. And Paul is saying, I'm bound to thank God. I am compelled to thank God. I'm obligated to thank God for you. In fact, the word is much even stronger than that in the original. Paul is saying that I'm standing in awe. I'm standing in awe of the fact that you are always looking up when everybody else is looking down. Even in the midst of your troubles, even in the midst of your difficulties. Paul knew exactly who to thank for the steadfastness, faith, and love of the believers in Thessaloniki. That gratitude that burnt in his heart is like a debt owed to God. Why God? Why God? Why not to them? Ah, because listen to me, God is the one who gives us the strength to trust Him when all of hell breaks loose. God is the one who gives us the power not just to survive, but to thrive when our world is closing in. It is God who gives us the supernatural ability to persevere even sore when it appears that we have no strength 
and all hope is gone. Today in the Western world, very few Christians can truly identify with the faith of the Thessalonians. Far from looking up, they will be looking at the television screen night after night. They allow the news to impact their life and their thought and decision-making. We moan and complain at the slightest bit of inconvenience. That these Thessalonians, for the sake of Christ, they will experience destruction of their livelihood, attack on their children, their homes were vandalized, they experienced false arrest and imprisonment, and even death. They were lied upon, and their reputation was tattered. And yet, through it all, through it all, their faith and trust in the living God grew and intensified in intensity. Instead of saying, why me? (laughs) They were saying, why not me? Why not me? Question, how can persecution and suffering actually increase their faith instead of destroying it? Answer, because they allowed their suffering to drive them closer to the heart of God, because their afflictions drove them closer and closer to the God who saved them instead of be driven away from Him. Here's the core of our problem. We tend to speak about faith as if it's tangible commodity. They talk about it as if it's something that they can measure or something that can weigh in the scale. When someone says, oh, I wish I have your faith, it'd be like somebody said, oh, I wish I have your blue eyes, or I wish I was tall as you are. No, no. Faith is not something that you can weigh by the ounce. Faith is not something you inherit like your DNA. Faith is not something that you can lose the way an absent-minded professor losing his glasses all the time. But rather, faith is growing trust in the living God. Faith is like a tree whose roots grow deeper into the soil, whose branches go higher into the sky, and all but it would shrivel without water. Faith is like the athlete's muscles. They grow strong by exercise. Oh, but they will atrophy for inactivities. Yes, Paul is affirming the Thessalonians without tempting them to pride. Why? He goes on to tell us why. (laughs) Because history is coming to an end, and we need to be filled with faith. We need to love one another more. We need to hold fast into the hope that we have. We need to lift up one another. Look at verses 5 to 10, please. One thing we know about the Word of God, and Paul exhibits it here, actually, but it's every, the whole Word of God. I mean, I can absolutely, unabashedly tell you this. The Word of God is realistic, 
The Word of God is true, and Paul is showing us it. See, he's not looking through reality with a, a rose-colored glasses. No, he's very realistic. Sure, life is unfair, but God's justice is coming. Sure, our critics and false accusers try to destroy us, but what they don't know is that they're making us stronger. Back in 1977, 78, around those two years, I lived in California, and I was befriended by a well-known pastor in Southern California, and he used to say to me, Brother, when they kick you in the rear, rejoice, because that means you're ahead of them. So I've been rejoicing ever since. (laughs) Another benefit when you are being harassed and attacked and even alienated by your friends, by your neighbors, even by some family members, it keeps you on your knees of prayer. Not just for yourself, but for those who are causing you trouble, those who are attacking you. Above all, These believers were looking forward to the day when Christ will appear and bring history to conclusion. Paul is not suggesting that those who persecuted the believers should not be held accountable. I'm not saying that at all. And he's not saying that. In fact, when he was arrested in Philippi and they tried to get him out of jail, you know, at night and quietly, he said, no, 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 let the governor come here and get us out. You put us there publicly, they get us out publicly. So he's not suggesting that at all. We need to go through every legal means. We need to appeal to them in every way we can. We need to warn them as to the consequences of their actions. Why? Verse 5. All this evidence that God's judgment is right. In other words, even if they think they got away with it, the day is coming when God will severely judge them. Paul is saying God is just, and He's going to repay. He's going to repay them for their action. God will judge them for calling evil good and good evil. They will pay a severe penalty for that. The Bible never pretends that evil is not real. Never. The Bible never minimizes pain, suffering, and sin. The Bible calls evil by its name. But don't ever forget also that he's telling us that whenever the believer suffers, especially suffer unjustly for the sake of Christ, God is with us in those times in a very special way. My God with us all the time, right? God is present everywhere. God is with us every moment of every day. But in those times when we are suffering unjustly, God's presence revealed to us in a way it could never be revealed any other way. God will sustain us uniquely in times of unjust suffering. Verse 9, they will be punished. Not just a slap in the back, oh, you naughty little boy. No, 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 no. They will be punished by everlasting, with everlasting destruction, and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Three questions. Three questions. Number one, 
When will God vindicate the believer and judge the non-believer? Second question, who will be punished? Three, what form this punishment is going to take place? Let me answer those very quickly. First question, when will God vindicate and revenge the suffering of His servants? Sometimes God does it right away. And believe me, I saw that with my own eyes, that instant, but not very often. (laughs) I wish it's always every time, but it's rare. But I've seen it. Other times, it takes time. But mostly, it's going to be at the climax of history. His appearance will spell the end of all opportunities for repentance and salvation. That will be it. No more hope, no more opportunity, no more chances. His return will be a moment in which the world is going to be divided only in two camps, the saved and the unsaved, the just and the unjust, those whose names are written in the book of life, and those who mocked the Lord Jesus Christ and mocked His Word. When Jesus returns, He will turn the world upside down. Upside down. Listen to me, please. Everything that is today being lifted up in pride. Remember that word, pride, arrogance, smugness, by lying and cheating, it's going to be cast down. And everything that's held down and oppressed for Christ's sake is going to be lifted up. Here and now, Christ's glory is hidden. Here and now, His children falsely accused. Here and now, they call good evil and evil good. Here and now, the righteous power of Jesus is hidden from the world. But on that day, it will be fully revealed. Two thousand years ago, when Jesus came into the world, He came in humility, and He came alone. But in the second coming, He will come as the King of glory. Oh, by the way, he will not return alone. Not like his first coming, verse 7. He will return with his powerful angels, all of them. Think about this. And blazing fire. Blazing fire. What is that blazing fire? What is Paul referring to? This is the fire of judgment. This is the intense inferno of justice. This is the white-hot furnace that will engulf his enemies. Ah, but also that same blazing fire will avenge his faithful children. So look up, look up when others are looking down. Second question, who will be punished? Those who have denied Jesus as the only Savior and Lord for everyone. I'm going to tell you why. This is very important to me. There's false teaching afoot many evangelical churches that says, yes, Jesus is my Savior, but He's not everybody's Savior. Buddhists have their Savior. Hindus have their Savior. Muslims have their Savior. None of them claim to be Savior, by the way. (laughs) It's ignorance on the part of these secular humanists. I'm going to show you why this is dreadful teaching. It really is. It's absolutely from the pit of hell. I'm going to show you in the next message, in fact, how Satan is using this false teaching, and now 70% of evangelicals in America say that Jesus is not the only way. 
This is Satan's way of preparing the world for the Antichrist. Look at verses 8 and 9. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole gospel, not the bits and pieces they choose, not the bits and pieces that they like, the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. This judgment of God will be so flawless that no one, no one will protest. Oh, this is unjust. This is unfair. I'm innocent. This sentence is too harsh. No, it's not going to happen. Do you know why? Because they will see with clarity then, they will see with clarity that they deserve this punishment. They will remember with clarity that they falsified the truth. They will remember with clarity that they have exercised injustice. Romans 12, 19, Paul wrote, Do not take revenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Beloved, human justice at its best is flawed, really is, even the best, because it's based on limited knowledge and limited understanding. But heavenly justice is flawless. It's flawless because it's based on limitless wisdom and knowledge. Third question, what form will this punishment take? At verse 9 and 10, the word destruction here, by the way, listen carefully, the word destruction here doesn't mean annihilation. There, there some people say, oh, destroy, I mean, it doesn't mean that they're going to vaporize. Because the Word of God says that they will wish that they could simply disappear, and the rocks would cover them from the face of Jesus. But that's not going to be an option. Destruction here means the loss of everything that makes existence worthwhile. He described this destruction as they're going to be shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Look with me, please, at incredible contrast. Look at the promise of Jesus to His faithful children on that day, and then contrast it with that punishment for those who rejected Him and rejected the truth of His Word, verses 11 and 12. The believers who face persecution, unjust suffering for Christ's sake. Now, now let me give you a use of uh, translation, actually the interpretation, so that I don't get into trouble. In other words, he's saying, don't spend your time being filled with fear and terror, because the great things are waiting the believer. Don't spend your days complaining on how evil the government is. Don't wallow in bitterness at the corruption that is surrounding us, and it's everywhere you turn. Don't let that impact your life. Instead, you should pray for one another. You should be loving one another. You should be encouraging one another. You should be ministering to each other. You should be reminding each other of the day that is coming and the nearness of Christ's return. Listen to me. What Jesus is preparing 
for the believers cannot be compared, cannot be compared with any pain and suffering that we may go through right now. Cannot be compared. I know some of you are saying, but Michael, shouldn't be wanting to destroy our enemies now. Yes. Are you surprised? Yeah. As a matter of fact, I'm going to show you how to destroy your enemy right now. I'm going to show it to you by telling you a true story. True story. During the Civil War, President Abraham Lincoln spoke at an official reception in the White House. In his speech, he said the following. He said, the Confederates should be viewed not as enemies to be exterminated, but as fellow human beings with mistaken views about slavery. At that, a woman who was in the audience became outraged. She became angry, and she could not understand how the Confederates should be forgiven. At the end, she confronted President Lincoln directly, and she demanded to know how he could possibly speak kindly of his enemies instead of demanding their destruction. President Lincoln looked at her and said the following, when I quote it word for word, Why, madam, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? Why, madam, don't I destroy my enemies by making them my friends? Do you want to destroy enemies right now? Start praying for them. Start reaching out to them. You know, Muslims commanded to take vengeance for their God. And that is why you saw the terrorist attack in France and Paris and because of the caricature and cartoons and the mocking the prophet. And, and they have to take revenge for their God. In our faith, our God takes revenge for His children. Leave the real vengeance to God. You pray. You praise. You glory in His coming. And it may be sooner than we think. 